Well, just a, just a note, you know, when you get to the end of these conferences, you're going to walk out of here, your, your brain is so full, you don't even know what to do with yourself. And so I want to give you a couple of suggestions. Um, first of all, I would encourage you the next week, if you've taken some notes, look over them again and put this in your brain and in your mind. I would also encourage you, take this back to your local church and get some others to listen to these messages and download them. And also just be that kind of explosion of steadfastness that maybe some in your church need, that maybe somebody needs some encouragement. They need to be um, brought alongside and encouraged. So take it back uh, to your own church. And of course, if you don't have a local church right now and you live in the area, we would love to see you at uh, Grace Bible Church in the morning. Um, I'm actually going to continue preaching on steadfastness in our own church. Uh, we're in the middle of a series on the local church. And so I'll be preaching on the, the steadfastness of a local church and what that looks like and, and how that comes together. Well, as I thought about how we ought to end our time on this topic, and by the way, this isn't just this year's topic. We need steadfastness all the time. And so this is every year what we'll do. I wanted to just think about an anchor, kind of an anchor point, a, a solid point for us to end on and think about. The anchor of steadfastness, maybe a central highlight that gives us hope, gives us strength and peace and joy and stability in our faith. And what I decided to do is I think the, the greatest steadfast anchor that we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's a shame in the church that generally speaking, the gospel is thought of as just an evangelistic plea, that the gospel is for the unbeliever. I love Romans 1.15 where Paul said to the church at Rome, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for the unbeliever. It is for the believer and we have to live it out every day. We need to hear the gospel all the time. It's the message of the gospel that the evil one attacks. This is where he puts the most effort into deception. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Galatians 1.6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Variations on the gospel are as common as the latest author or the latest pop-up seeker-sensitive church. Some sort of candy-coated gospel where you're not really as bad as you thought you were and God is not really as big as he ought to be proclaimed. But instead, the biblical gospel, completely different, and we need it. It destroys self-righteousness. It tears down your idols. It brings you to your knees in submission first. Then as a child of God, it raises you to your feet in adoration of the God who saved you, the God of all grace. Charles Spurgeon preached this. He said, avoid a sugared gospel as you would shun sugar of lead. Seek the gospel which rips up and tears and cuts and wounds and hacks and even kills. For that is the gospel that makes alive again. And when you have found it, give good heed to it. Let it enter into your innermost being as the rain soaks into the ground. So pray the Lord to let his gospel soak into your soul. That's the gospel of Christ. I have one goal as we close out our day together. I want us to leave proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The gospel is the foundation of our stability and strength of faith. 
Colossians 1.23, Paul said, Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And that's actually where I'd like to start this evening. Of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, in a few minutes, we'll be in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. But I'd like to start, first of all, examining the Apostle Paul back when he was known as Saul. Saul of Tarsus. I think we could say he was maybe the least likely person ever to be saved. He had three strikes against him. Three strikes against him, and we'll call them weakness, wickedness, and war. Weakness, wickedness, and war. First, he was in a state of spiritual weakness. Now, what was Paul's spiritual weakness? Well, he was dead in his trespasses and sins and utterly convinced of his own worth, his own merit before God, his own righteousness. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul gave a list of how he thought of himself prior to salvation. And these were things that were all true, but they were still sources of spiritual pride for him. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day in strict accordance with the law. He was, quote, of the people of Israel, meaning he was a member of the covenant nation. He wasn't a proselyte. He was physically descended from Abraham. And he can take it even further, of the tribe of Benjamin. Many Jews could not trace their ancestry or were descendants of proselytes. He also says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. What is this? This is a Jew who could still speak Hebrew as opposed to the Jews of the dispersion who had taken the language of their adopted countries. He was a child of Greek-speaking Jews who also had retained the native tongue in their own home. And he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. And he interpreted this for us later in the same verse. He said that he was blameless under the law of God. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. To understand the level of Paul's devotion and training and intelligence, let's step back even to his beginnings. Saul grew up in Tarsus, the capital city of Cilicia. Tarsus had a very colorful history. It included visits from men like Xerxes and uh, Darius and Cyrus, Alexander the Great, Mark Antony, Cleopatra. In the first century AD, Tarsus had a large Jewish population, so Saul would have been right at home there. Now, Tarsus was famous for goat's hair felt, from which blankets and clothing, belts, saddles, and tent cloth was made. And so young Saul was taught the tent-making trade. We know this from Acts 18. All Jewish boys learned a trade alongside their academic education. Tarsus was a university town as well. The Greek historian Strabo described Tarsus as having surpassed Athens and surpassed Alexandria in terms of the quality of university-level education. Tarsus and the surrounding areas was famous for the philosophers it produced. They produced Archidemus and Nestor and Chrysippus and Eratus. And even though Paul was brought up in a strict Jewish home, he had a wealth of Greek literature and Greek philosophy at his disposal as part of his background. In his sermon to the philosophers in Athens, recorded in Acts 17, Paul quoted the Greek poet Eratus, which happened, he grew up right around the same area as Paul did. Titus chapter 1, verse 12, Paul quoted Epimenides. He was a Cretan poet. Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15, that, quote, bad company ruins good morals is a well-known Greek proverb from a line in an ancient Greek play. Paul was quoting the literature of his day. 
Well, Saul was also a Roman citizen, and this was no small honor. In about AD 47, Emperor Claudius took a census of his whole empire, 80 million people in total population, 6 million of them only were Roman citizens. So he had it all going for him. About the age of six, Saul would have began his study of the Torah, his study of writing and arithmetic. At the age of 10, he would begin studying the Mishnah, the oral commentary on the Torah. And that was added to the study. At about 11 or 12, Paul, then Saul, was sent to Jerusalem to study with Gamaliel. We know this from Acts 22. Now, Gamaliel was the grandson of the famous rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, who was the president of the Sanhedrin Jewish Council. Gamaliel was called by the rare title Rabban Gamaliel, meaning master teacher, not just rabbi, but master rabbi. He was one of the most influential men of his day, very possibly. He was one of the teachers that Jesus himself interacted with as a boy in the temple, as recorded in Luke 2. The Babylonian Talmud ascribed such honor to Gamaliel that it says, after Rabban Gamaliel died, the honor of the Torah was lost. He was such a great teacher. Acts 5 says he was a teacher of the law held in respect by all people. Gamaliel not only knew the Torah, but he knew Greek literature. He encouraged all of his students to learn it as well. And so Saul was educated by literally the best mind in Judaism. Gamaliel was to education in Judaism what Harvard is to law in our culture. So just to kind of put it all together, what Saul knew about himself... His early education was outstanding. It included not only Greek literature and thought, but he also retained the traditional Hebrew education and language. He studied Torah. He studied the major oral commentaries on the Torah all by the age of 11. He was ultra privileged to be a Roman citizen. His bloodline was flawless, able to be traced back almost 2,000 years to Benjamin himself. He was chosen to study with the grand master of all the teachers in Jerusalem, And he was invited to be part of the sect of the Pharisees, knew the law flawlessly, and from his perspective, kept it flawlessly as well. But what did Saul, as the saved Paul, say about all of this once he had come to faith in Christ? Philippians 3.8, he said it was all rubbish, literally dung. It was worthless to him because he had to have not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Not one of these accomplishments did a single thing toward his salvation. It didn't get him any closer to heaven. It gained him no merit, no favor, no good standing with God whatsoever. He was spiritually dead. He was utterly convinced of his own goodness, utterly lost in his own sin. The first strike against Saul was that he had weakness. He had weakness. He had no strength spiritually. Second strike against him was his wickedness. His wickedness in Acts 23, 6, we learn that Saul was not only a devout Jew, he was a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. They were called the separated ones. The Pharisees, as you well know, is a sect of Judaism, mostly middle-class businessmen. Over time, the Pharisees began adding rules as kind of hedges of protection around the scriptures to keep men from violating the Torah. This was a belief in your self-righteousness, that I can somehow keep the law. They were held in very high esteem by most as impressive law keepers. 
Some Pharisees were on the Sanhedrin, the Jerusalem Council, and some were priests. They had great influence on the Sanhedrin. They accepted what is our Old Testament as the written word of God, but they gave equal authority to oral tradition, saying that it went all the way back to Moses. So in other words, the word of God is the word of God, but what we say about the word of God is also the word of God. These traditions were added to God's word and treated as just as binding. They exaggerated all the laws to the extreme, such as not even being able to pick up a single grain of wheat on the Sabbath. So instead of an orthodox faith, which is an internal reality of loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, theirs was just an external legalism and mutated true faith into a list of rules and rituals. The Pharisees were major opponents of Jesus during his ministry. I mean, when you think of the enemies of Christ, the first word that comes to your mind is Pharisee. Christ made a judgment of them, and he made himself extremely clear. Luke 16, 6 He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, meaning watch out for the influence of their legalism, which will, like a little yeast, impacts the whole loaf of bread. It'll alter the entire message of the gospel. He said, beware of that. Matthew 23, Jesus pronounced seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees. He said, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides, he says. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. He keeps going, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then he closes. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? See, the self-righteous Pharisee that had faith in himself, was considered by Jesus the epitome of evil. Everything that was evil is compounded and compacted into a Pharisee, the antithesis of a humble man of faith. Jesus drove the point home even further with his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who went to the temple to pray. You remember that the prayer prayer of the repentant tax collector was humble and was a plea for mercy from God on a wretched sinner and he wouldn't even look up You remember the prayer of the Pharisee, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He was self-righteous. Now, what's the point of this? Saul boasted about being that which Jesus said is the epitome of evil. Strike two, Saul. Jesus asked, 
how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Well, Saul had a third strike against him, his weakness, his wickedness, but the third strike was war. He was at war with God himself. Saul considered himself a champion of Judaism, and how did he prove his zeal for his pharisaical faith? Philippians 3, he says, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. You recall very well from Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen. Acts seven fifty eight records that there were witnesses against Stephen, and they laid their outer garments at the feet of Saul. Now, was Saul there just as a guy saying, hey, I'll hold your coat, that's no problem. Why did they put their garments down at his feet? Because he was in charge of the whole thing. It was his idea. He was having Stephen killed. Acts 9 records that Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Acts 22 says that he persecuted Christians to the death, that he had both men and women imprisoned for their faith. Galatians 1.13 tells us that Saul persecuted the, the church violently, trying to destroy it. As a matter of fact, this is what was propelling him up the ladder of leadership in the ranks of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. He was the terror of the church of Jesus Christ. And it began just shortly after the ascension of Christ. Listen, Saul knew who he was at war with. He said in Acts 26, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He admits that he cast his vote for the death penalty for the believers he had put in prison. What was the extent of his war against Christ He says in Acts 26, I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He hated Jesus Christ. He hated his savior. By the time we get to know Saul, I don't know about you, but I would think that if anyone should be rejected by God and not offered salvation by Christ, it would be him. I mean, this is the man with three strikes against him in the eyes of heaven. But Saul is very blessed. And I'll tell you why. You know the story when Saul was supervising and condoning the murder of Stephen. Stephen prayed a final prayer. He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I think God answered that prayer in Saul. As Saul was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, he was confronted by a light from heaven that blinded him and made him fall to the ground. And a voice asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And I imagine this was a shocking answer to him. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I would think that at that moment, Saul had the most giant, epic, Oh, no, experience of anybody. But the Lord gloriously saved him. Later, Saul, now going by his Greek name, Paul, would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You can hear the heartfelt regret in that. 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, or some of your versions will say the chief of sinners. Saul had three strikes against him, his weakness, his wickedness, and his war against God himself. Now, I think it's tempting to agree with Paul when he says he's the foremost of all sinners. We can say, yeah, you win the prize. 
But then we come to his magnum opus, the greatest treatise on the gospel of Jesus Christ ever written, the book of Romans. And in Romans 5, beginning in verse 6, we see that if salvation for Saul was an astounding act of grace toward an eminently unqualified man, God's grace toward you and toward me was just as shocking. You want to know why? Because Romans 5 tells us that we had the same three strikes against us. We were no better. Christ died for us while we were in a state of weakness, while we were in a state of wickedness, and while we were in a state of war. Now in Romans 1 through 4, Paul has shown that God has fulfilled his promises regarding salvation by means of the death and resurrection of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 21, Paul explained that the righteousness of God had been manifest apart from the law. Mankind can only be justified, verse 24, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 26, Paul tells us that God purposed to be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. One is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Then we have this clear theme of justification continuing in chapter 4 with the example of Abraham being justified by faith before the law, before circumcision. He was justified by faith alone. Well, chapter 5 begins a new section in Romans. And it's a section that focuses in on the certain hope that we have in Christ now that we have been saved. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, we get a list of benefits of salvation We have justification by faith, the legal standing of having Christ's righteousness credited to our account. We have access to God by faith. We have standing in the grace of God. And we have rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. And now we get to our text, and it gives us the reason for our hope, the certainty of our salvation. The reason for our hope is that Christ died for us while we were in a state of weakness, while we were in a state of wickedness, and while we were at war with him. Chapter 5, verse 6. Follow along with me, please. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Just like Paul, we had three strikes against us, and I'd like to walk through those strikes as a reminder of what we've received. The first strike we had against us was weakness. And I'd like to divide this into spiritual weakness and moral weakness. First of all, we were spiritually weak. Verse 6 says, while we were still weak, we had an absolute inability to come to God. There was no divine spark in us that somehow swayed God to send Christ to die for those who would believe. Where human power was a complete abject failure, God's love was a total success. It was a self-caused love of God. This is total abject helplessness. We couldn't come to God any more than a newborn baby can walk to its mother. It's not possible. It was utter powerlessness. The term weak is paralleled by a term that helps us understand spiritual weakness. 
We weren't just spiritually weak, we were morally weak as well. The term that parallels weak is Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not saying Christ died for the ungodly as opposed to the godly. That's not what it's saying. There are no godly people. They don't exist. Romans 3 tells us that. But if we just focus on spiritual weakness, our inability to come to God, the first part, it is possible to see ourselves as somehow innocent victims of our fallen state. But the moral weakness, the ungodly part, this is our culpability. This is our responsibility for the weakness. We are ungodly and we did it on purpose. What does it mean to be ungodly? Well, there's some great examples in scripture. Job, in his time of trial and agony, when he had all of his family taken from him, all of his possessions destroyed, he says this in Job 16, men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They massed themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. So the ungodly would be, first of all, those who delight in the pain of others. The writer of Psalm 43 cries out for deliverance from the ungodly. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. So for the writer of Psalm 43, the ungodly person was deceitful, unjust, and malicious. Second Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, If God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So who are the ungodly? Just from these few examples, the ungodly are the type of people who delight in the pain of others. They're deceitful, they're unjust, they're malicious. They're the type of people God drowned in the flood and the type of people God burned in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the state that God says you were in. That's who you were. But verse six, even in this state, at the right time, Christ died for us. What does that mean at the right time? Well, first of all, at the right spiritual time, his death made reconciliation available to the sinner while he was still in his lost state. It was at the right historic time. The right historic time, Galatians 4.4, says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. This is the culmination of God's redemptive plan, the right historic time. And it was at the right omniscient time. The right omniscient time, salvation has always been in the mind of God. Christ's death was not an afterthought. After the whole Adam and Eve thing in the garden, they didn't have a big staff meeting in heaven to say, well, we better go to plan B now. That was always the plan. It was always God's plan to allow sin, and it was always God's plan to deal with sin. And now Paul illustrates this with one of the most interesting verses in all of Romans. Verse 7 For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Now on the surface, it seems like that the righteous person and the good person are kind of synonyms. It's the same person stating the same thing twice. But it's very clearly a comparison and contrast statement. There's actually quite a debate about the meaning of these. But I think we can boil it down to a couple of thoughts that will help us. The righteous person, the first one that Paul uses as an example... 
for one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Now, this isn't speaking of judicial righteousness. It's not speaking of righteousness in terms of your standing before God. It's just generally speaking of a deserving person, of a nice guy. This might be an individual person, somebody you may know, somebody you may not. This is the fireman giving his life for a potential victim. This is the combat buddy throwing himself in the line of fire to save a fellow soldier. Verse 7 says this is rare. It happens, but it's rare. Somebody who seems to be deserving of having their life saved. But the contrast, it's more likely that one might die for a good person. What is this speaking of? This is someone with whom you have a relationship, a wife or a child. This is somebody that you would say, I am more willing than than I would be with a stranger to give my life up for this person. So what's the point of this contrast with Christ? Paul's saying, first of all, it's, it's highly unlikely that someone would die for another, even if it's somebody who's lived a proper life and deserves to be rescued. Maybe it's a little more likely that somebody would die for a particularly special person where there's a, a personal relationship. This is common knowledge. And we would put this in our own terms here. For me personally, it would take a lot for me to lay down my life for somebody I don't know. That's just the way it is. But for one of my sons or for my daughter or for my wife, I would be much more likely to lay down my life. What's the point of the contrast? The point is is that Jesus laid down his life for the ungodly, the complete opposite. It's the totally undeserving, those who have no relationship with him, those who have no merit whatsoever. The death of Christ is in a completely different category. There's no comparison whatsoever. None. We were weak. The first strike we had was weakness, spiritual and moral weakness, but Christ died for us anyway. The second strike we had, we weren't just weak, we were wicked. Wickedness. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Chapter 5, verse 8, this is an encapsulation of the gospel. If you want to learn how to present the gospel, just know Romans 5, 8. It's a stronger version than verse 6. He says, while we were still sinners, and this is important for us to understand, the Father wasn't moved to save us because of the work of the Son, as if Christ somehow convinced God the Father to save people because of what was already done on the cross. Do you realize that God chose to save you before the cross ever happened? That's amazing. That's an amazing thought that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was a pre-death move on God's part. Now there's a direct relationship between the love of God and the death of Christ. One led to the other. The death being the expressed outworking of God's love. David Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this. We shall never really understand the love of God until we see what sin is in the sight of this holy God whose wrath is upon it. Listen, God is perfectly justified in his wrath. According to the perfect wrath of God, this verse could have said, but God shows his wrath to us in that while we were sinners, he poured out his fury upon us. That's what it could have said. And rightfully so. But instead, the love of God is shown to us in that God poured his wrath on Christ. Christ took our penalty as our substitute. By the way, what's a sinner? What's a sinner? 
It's someone in an active state of living a selfish, godless life. Genesis 13, 13 called the men of Sodom wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Psalm 1, 1 says it's a blessing to stay away from sinners. Psalm 1, 5 says sinners will be separated from the righteous and will fall in the judgment of God. Psalm 26, 9, it's the sinner who will be swept away by the Lord. Psalm 104, 35, the psalmist prays, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Ecclesiastes 2.26, the sinner is one who will work and toil all of his life, eventually only to have everything he has taken from him and given to the righteous. Isaiah 1.28 says that rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. It is so tempting, so tempting to think I'm just a little better than the next guy. I mean, we're, we're built to think that way. Paul dealt with this idea, the idea with the, with the Jews. They thought they were automatically in good with God because they were Jews, just as Paul, as Saul, used to think of himself. Here's how he dealt with it earlier in Romans 3. He said, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. What's a sinner? Somebody who misses the mark. Somebody who breaks God's law. Someone to stay away from. Somebody who deserves to be swept away and consumed by God. Could I put it this way? A sinner is somebody who leads an utterly pointless life in the eyes of God. In the famous novel, The Lord of the Flies, it's a story of a group of schoolboys who were evacuated out of Britain during wartime, but their plane crashes on an island. And it leaves just the boys alive on this deserted island. They quickly try to organize a government. And fights and factions begin to form. Eventually, the boys begin killing each other with their bare hands. Several murders happen before the boys are rescued. And the horror of the end of this is that these boys have to face the grotesqueness of their own sin. It's fiction based on an accurate assessment of the condition of mankind. And someone will say, well, I'm no murderer. Well, you didn't start there, but given enough time and circumstances, you would be. It starts by rationalizing sin as children. It ends with adults who cheat on their spouses, step on people to succeed, cheat to make money, eagerly go after creating their own little empire on earth. And this was you. This was you and this was me. As God said in Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Romans 5.8 has two beautiful words. But God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The third strike we had against us, we were at war. We weren't just spiritually weak. We weren't just wicked. It was an act of rebellion. It was an act of war. We were the enemy of God. Verse nine, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We weren't just sinners against each other. We were enemies of God. Now, what does it mean to be God's enemy? I've 
mentioned this to unbelievers before. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to speak to one. And I asked him what his relationship with God was. And he said, oh, we have a good relationship. And he used the typical metaphors of the man upstairs and my best friend and all of that that unbelievers use to try to fool you into thinking they know God. And so we went through the gospel just a little bit, uh, just real briefly, didn't have much time. And I just said, do you know what the Bible says about you? The Bible says that you were God's enemy and you're at war with him. He broke into a sweat. And no, 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 hey, I'm not at war with God. We're, we're good. That's what mankind wants to do. It feels, it feels unfair to say you're at war with God. It feels harsh. You say, I've never hated God. That's too harsh. And the Bible says you have. We declared war on God. Romans 1 tells us that human beings deliberately ceased worshiping the one and only God and turned to false gods. That's war. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Colossians 1, 21, The unbeliever is hostile in mind toward God. You were not neutral. You were not passive. You were not on the sidelines. You were not just a spectator. You were against him. With all of your heart. 62 times in scripture, the sinner is said to be against the Lord. Numbers chapter 16. After Israel had escaped Egypt, Korah assembled people and 250 chiefs of Israel. They were well-known men. Number 16.3 says, they gathered themselves against Moses and against Aaron. They wanted control. So Moses proposed a gathering. Well, let's just find out who the Lord will choose. The next day, number 1611 says, therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. The next day again, God demonstrated how he deals with his enemies. The ground opened up and swallowed Korah, his family, his fellow rebels, and all their families. You were not neutral. I was not neutral. Your sin declared war on God. Because of that, God is in the position of official, holy hostility against the sinner. Romans 1.18 says, you were declared to be condemned to God's wrath. Colossians 1.21, God alienated you from himself. God told Moses in this situation in Numbers, get the people away from the rebels. And he separated the rebels and judged them because they had declared war on God, bringing upon themselves God's wrath. The wrath of God is what we deserved. It's what we ought to have received as the one who declared war on holy God for your unholy sin. I don't know about you, but I I think it's really tempting to believe that somewhere down in the deep recesses of your heart that you were just a little bit different. That God would treat you just a little bit different. I mean, what's our excuse? We say, Lord, it's me after all. You look in the mirror. I mean, look at me, the epitome of manhood. Why would you say I'm at war with you? I think this is natural. Everyone feels this way about themselves. Don't buy the lie. Don't forget the extent of God's grace. I think even believers can be fooled into thinking that you are just a little more savable than your neighbor. I think we often read scripture and it's natural to place ourselves in the pages because we know how the story ends. And so we put ourselves, and, and we put ourselves in the shoes of the ones who would have stood for righteousness, that we would have made the right decision. Remember what I said that, the, the, that Jesus exposed about the Pharisees, what did they believe about themselves? 
He said, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Now, I can't speak for you. I can only speak for myself. But I know myself well enough to put myself accurately in the pages of Scripture. When Noah was warning the world of impending judgment in my sin, I would have rejected the offer of the ark. I would have participated in the rebellious building of the Tower of Babel. I would have thrown Joseph into the pit and I would have taken the money to sell him into slavery. I would have fashioned, I would have been at the front of the line gathering the gold to make the golden calf. I would have been one of the ten fearful spies in Canaan struck down by God for their lack of faith. I would have worshipped the gods, the false gods in the high places. I would have gone along with the injustice and the immorality that came to characterize Israel. I wouldn't have listened to the prophets. I would have mocked them. I would have scorned them. And when John the Baptist came, I would have jeered and mocked him for his cries for my repentance. I would have fallen away when Jesus explained the cost of following him. And I would have been part of the crowd condemning him, shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And if I could have gotten to the front of the line, I would have taken the hammer And I would have nailed the nails into his wrists and into his feet. I would have done it. Why? Because I was an enemy of God and that's what enemies do. Do you understand what God saved you from? That would have been you. That would have been me. While you were God's enemy, how did he deal with the wrath you deserved? Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. In the end of verse 10, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? God justified us. He reconciled us. Justified is legal language. The life that Christ lived has been credited to you and the death that Christ died was on your behalf. This was the trade. What an unfair trade. Christ said, I'll give you the perfect life I lived and you give me the punishment for your sin that you deserved. Justification says that I am now in right standing before the Lord. If justification is the legal part of your salvation, reconciliation is the relational part of your salvation. To be reconciled, it's the making of peace between two parties who were formerly estranged, but now they've come together in peace. It's the bringing about of a love relationship between two who used to be enemies. The relationship between justification and reconciliation is not hard to understand. Justification is the cause and reconciliation is the result. It's the effect. You were transformed from being an enemy of God to a child of God. Verse 9 says, much more you're saved from the wrath of God. Verse 10, much more you're saved by the life of Christ. This is talking about your future. In saying much more, Paul is doing what we call using an argument from the greater to the lesser. That since God has already done the most difficult task, that's to justify his own enemies, then we can be confident that he'll do what by comparison is very easy to save us from his wrath. The greatest obstacle has already been conquered. Romans 5, 9, and 10 tells us that God's promise now will avert God's judgment later. Wonderful promise. Verse 9 and 10, Paul says, much more, much more. Verse 11, more than that, 
the climax of this passage, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And this is the application of the doctrine. It is to rejoice, it's to celebrate, it's to be joyful, it's to worship God because your future is secured. You had three strikes, impossible strikes. But Christ died for you when you were in the worst possible condition of inability to partake in the goodness of God. You were weak, you were wicked, you were at war with God. But now, instead of being spiritually weak, Hebrews 6, that we have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Instead of being wicked, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And instead of being at war with God, Romans 5 says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the anchor of steadfastness? The truth that gives us strength and hope and peace and joy and stability in our faith. It is the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Here's irony for you. Who would have thought that Saul, who was the terror of the church, Saul, who was named after the first king of Israel, there's pride for you, Saul, who thought himself so very great, Saul, who scorned and hated the very name of Jesus Christ, that he would become the one to write the single greatest description of Jesus Christ as found in Colossians 1, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is preeminent in everything. In him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. He will reconcile all things to himself, having made peace by the blood of the cross. And he continues, based on what we know about Christ, based on the gospel, based on the grace that God extends to those who don't deserve it. Paul continues that while you were alienated and hostile in mind, while you were doing evil deeds, he reconciled you by his own death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach that you might continue in the faith, he says, stable and steadfast. It is the basis for our steadfastness, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul's story is your story and it's my story. We are living trophies and testimonies of the amazing grace of God revealed in Christ and given in his beloved gospel. We have prayed for you extensively and our prayer as we leave shortly in just a few minutes, is that you will find strength and stability in the good news of the gospel and it will carry you through every day until that glorious day when we see him that we've never seen before. What a day that will be. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, what a travesty it is when we forget the good news that even we who once were enemies and now have been reconciled, that we forget the glory of the gospel And so it's my deep prayer, Lord, that for all of us, for myself included, I'm so thankful for this text and how it's impacted my own heart. 
It's my prayer for each person here that as they leave, the gospel of Christ would lead them into steadfastness as they persevere, as they pray, as they remember the loving kindness of God. Oh Lord, we ask you to do a mighty work. There are many churches, local churches represented here. Let every person here go back into their own local body and be an explosion of joy and maturity and steadfastness and love for Christ and love for the gospel and make us accurate and wonderful worshipers of God because of what we have come to know about you. Lord God, as Carl alluded to earlier, the chesed, the steadfast love, the loving kindness that you give never ceases. And on that note, we thank you and praise you in the name of Christ. Amen.